drink of water. So I had a professor in Bible college, uh, Dr. Hardesty, whom I'm pretty sure you guys like the Cromwells are familiar with Dr. Hardesty. Um, he used to always tell us to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Now, that's not necessarily good parenting advice, but for anyone who teaches, whether in a classroom, from a pulpit, or any other context, the goal is to make your content accessible. That doesn't necessarily mean that a student shouldn't have to work to understand, but content shouldn't be so far above someone's head that it's completely out of reach. For example, we don't start kindergartners on calculus. That would be frustrating. Paul's letter to the Philippians was written to both challenge and subtly warn the members of his church to be cognizant of the fact that while they have been rescued through the person and work of Jesus, so much of who they are has been shaped by Rome. In a world where citizenship, power, and self-promotion were the currency of the day, Paul puts forth the person of Christ, who possesses all power and authority, yet never uses that power and authority to promote or protect himself. Rather, as we saw two weeks ago, he humbles himself to the point of death, even the most shameful death on a cross. And so what Paul does is he actually argues that this picture of Jesus is what should shape our understanding of what heavenly citizenship is. But see, Paul's a really good teacher. And let's be honest, as incredible as Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 is, and as excited as I was to preach it, I'm actually going to read it really quick because it's that good. It says this, it says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is such a powerful passage of scripture. It's overwhelming. It's one of those ones that just immediately inspires us to worship. But if Paul would have left it there, I think the majority of us would have scratched our head and said to ourselves, cool, Paul, that's, that's great, but, but that's Jesus, right? He's God. I can't pull that off. I don't have any ability to possess the mind of Christ. And so being a really good teacher, Paul continues to further unpack what heavenly citizenship should look like. And little by little, he takes the cookies from the cabinet above the refrigerator and slowly moves them within reach till eventually we're in the kitchen baking up a batch for ourselves, which is where our text is taking us this morning. I think that it's also somewhat providential that we're looking at this passage on the same morning that we're baptizing five of our people. This passage gives us tangible examples of what it looks like to live out the Christian faith. And baptism, as the outward sign of one's entrance into the Christian faith, while we might not be intimately acquainted with the individuals we're going to meet in our passage this morning, those of you who are being baptized this morning, my hope is that you would find someone in your life to whom you can look who is a cross-shaped model of 
And so you were given a bulletin when you came in, and we will be following a simple outline this morning, which you can find on the bulletin insert. If you don't have a Bible with you, the passage will be both in your bulletin, and it's going to be up on the screen behind me. And so let's jump in. It starts off in chapter 2, verses 19 and following. It reads as follows. We're going to be looking at this first point as a son with a father. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So the first thing is we need to ask the question, who's Timothy? Right, who is this guy? Well, Timothy was a close friend and disciple of Paul. If you remember, he was with Paul when he first visited Philippi back in Acts chapter 16. We also know that Timothy served as a pastor in the city of Ephesus, which is part of the reason why some scholars believe that Paul is in Ephesus and not in Rome. We know that Timothy is a man of high character a devout follower of Christ. In fact, he was willing to be circumcised as an adult for the sake of serving as a more effective missionary. In other words, if a picture speaks a thousand words, Timothy's life is on par with the Mona Lisa as a vivid portrait of what a follower of Christ should look like. And so let's look at the text, that verse that I just read. It says that Paul hopes in the Lord Jesus. So this is more than simply a turn of phrase, but rather Paul is once again demonstrating his complete reliance and confidence in the person of Jesus. In fact, he bookends this discussion about being in the Lord, which we see show up again in verse 24. Being in Christ, being in the Lord is one of those extremely important parts of Paul's theology. And we talk about this regularly, this idea of being brought into union with Christ, meaning that everything that Christ possesses, we get as a result of putting our trust in him. So that's the beauty of salvation. When we're adopted into the family of God, we get everything Jesus gets. It also says that he hopes to send Timothy soon. This isn't really meant to be a time marker, but rather Paul is speaking with a sense of urgency. We know this because as we read on, Paul doesn't really know when he's going to be able to send Timothy. And then we learn why he plans on send sending Timothy, that I too may be cheered by the news of you. This reminds me of when Deanne is out and I look at the kids and say, Mommy's going to be home soon, right? <laughs> like, I'm not threatening them, but I kind of am. Like, we got work to do. We got to clean up. The point... Paul is encouraging the Philippians to sort out their stuff, and the unknown arrival of Timothy serves as a small fire underneath them to help convey the urgency of the matter. If you, if you remember, the Philippians, they're not in a horrible state, but there's some bickering going on. There's a little bit, there's some seeds of disunity. And Paul's basically saying, I, I want to hear a better report, guys. Get it together. Get it together. Clean up the house. But why Timothy? Verses 20 and following, it says this, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. First, Paul says that there's no one like him. Right, this doesn't mean that, like, like you know, he's, he's the apple of my eye. That's not really what's going on here. Basically, what, what he's saying is a literal translation of the word here is he's of like soul or like mind. So Paul is basically saying, I have nobody else who thinks the way I do. Like, this guy thinks the way I do. He understands me. He gets me. And he gets the things I care about. 
which is this genuine concern for the family of God. It says, I have nobody else who thinks the way I do, meaning I have no one else who will genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So in sending Timothy, he's in a sense sending himself because they are of the same mind, of the same soul. They breathe the same air. In fact, the only sort of people that Paul is surrounded with right now are people who seek their own interest, not the interest of Christ. And so in other words, Timothy gets it. He embodies what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That is, he doesn't look only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Remember when I talked about how that Christ him in the middle of the book, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, how it actually permeates everything in the book and that Paul is drawing things from the very center, excuse me, of the book. Everything revolves around Christ in Paul's mind. Everything revolves around chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And even here we see looking to one's own interests, and not the interest of others, is, is actually the opposite of the thing that Paul is putting forth in the person and work of Christ. He then says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. In other words, I don't have to tell you. You've met this guy. He's a rock star. He partnered with me in the same way a son partners with his father in learning and growing the family business. And then Paul closes out the section in verses 23 and 24 saying that he hopes to send him just as soon as he sees how it will go with him. And he trusts in the Lord that shortly he will come also. In other words, Timothy is helping sort through some things with Paul, most likely his trial. And once that is all figured out, the plan is for Timothy to come and for Paul to come as well. A couple things to remember. As I've mentioned, this is a letter of friendship. And friends talk about their plans with one another. If you have friends and you're going on vacation or you're planning on coming down to see them, I'm sure you talk about that stuff. Like, yeah, no, we're going to be in Florida. No, we're going to be in the city. We're going to be there. there. It's just, this is what's happening right now. It's a basic sort of, this is what's going on in my life. What we can also draw from this is that Paul really does want to see the Philippians. And, and, and the reason why we know this is because if you remember from chapter 1, some of the things that Paul says about them. He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul loves the people of this church. He wants to see them. In fact, it was their prayers and their financial gift that helped to sustain him while he sat in prison. And so the point, while on the surface this may look like a travel itinerary shared by friends, and it is, what Paul is doing is he's holding up a model of faith, a model with whom the Philippians would have been familiar with. They knew Timothy. Some of them might have even shared a meal with him. Maybe Timothy spent the night at their home. But Paul wants to bring the cookies down even closer. Sure, some of them might know Timothy, and while Timothy isn't Jesus, he's not even Paul. He's still a mid-level rock star of a saint, right, if that's a category in the saint world. He regularly hangs out with Paul. He's traveled all over the Roman Empire with him, planting churches. So, of course, like, he's crushing it. The cookies are still a bit out of reach. But then there's Epaphroditus. 
Epaphroditus, all we know about him is found in this letter. He's from Philippi, and his name would have been associated with the goddess Aphrodite. We might even speculate that prior to coming to faith, he was a follower of the cult of Aphrodite. He was also the individual who delivered the financial gift to Paul. In other words, Epaphroditus was a regular guy from Philippi, someone who would have been intimately familiar with the members of the church. They knew Epaphroditus. They spent time with Epaphroditus. They know all of Epaphroditus' bumps and bruises, right? It's similar to if you look around this room, people who you've been going to church with for years, you're kind of like, yeah, I know what they're going through. I know that so-and-so has a temper. I know that so-and-so might tend to gossip a little bit. You know each other, right? We know each other. Let's take a look at the text here. Verse 25 says this. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So Paul describes Epaphroditus as a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and a messenger and minister to my needs. Let me just break that down a little bit. So a brother. Remember, Paul sees the church as a family. In describing Epaphroditus as a brother, he's commending him. He's saying, this is my guy. He's close with me. He is family. Receive him. Don't think that anything's wrong because maybe he's coming home early. He's my guy still. He's my brother. And actually, he uses this same term to describe Timothy. So in a sense, he's saying, Epaphroditus, this regular guy who you know and spend time with, he's, he's on par with Timothy. All right? He's good. He's also a fellow worker. In referring to Epaphroditus as a fellow worker, Paul is implying that he exercises some form of leadership alongside Paul and that he has become, become a kind of public representative of the faith such that he will inevitably endure persecution. In other words, Paul and Epaphroditus are in this together. A couple of other fellow workers that we see talked about in Scripture are Priscilla and Aquila, Urbanus, Timothy, Apollo, Cephas, the household of Stephanus, Titus, Eudity, Eudia, and Syntyche, Clement, Ty Tychius, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justice from Colossians. Not a bad crew to be lumped in with. He's also a fellow soldier. This isn't a common term for Paul, but maybe a necessary one for the current situation. See, Epaphroditus could have been seen as, like I said before, returning early from battle. But Paul presents him as a good soldier who not only served on the front lines, but as we'll see in just a minute, risked his life. In other words, Epaphroditus is a man of courage, a faithful brother who is willing to give everything for the sake of the gospel. He is someone to look to someone to, to, to look at as a model of faith, someone who is running the race, fighting the good fight, and he's also a messenger and minister to my need. The messenger or apostle title may imply that Epaphroditus served in some sort of official capacity in the Philippian church, or it could mean that he was just a guy willing to be a messenger. But this other term, a minister to my need, carries the idea that Paul sees Epaphroditus as, as the way someone would see a public servant or, or a priest. What's the point? There's a lot of information. Paul wants the Philippians to know as Epaphroditus rolls into town and delivers this letter that he is an example of cross-shaped faith. If you're not sure what it looks like to have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, then you should talk to your friend and neighbor Epaphroditus. He can give you some tips. He can help you understand. Paul's not finished. 
verses 26 and following, it says this. It says, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy, not only on him, but on me as well, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. See, Paul picks up this this idea on why he thought it was necessary to send Epaphroditus back. Why? Because he was longing for them. In other words, he was homesick because he had been distressed because he heard that he was ill. This is the same language from both Matthew and Mark that is used to describe Jesus while he was distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And what sort of sickness was Epaphroditus experiencing? A sickness that was near to what? Death. In other words, Epaphroditus is embodying the person and work of Jesus who was greatly distressed and troubled, whose soul was very sorrowful even to death, who Paul describes just a few verses earlier as being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But God had mercy on both Epaphroditus and Paul, and he healed him. These last three verses, we're almost done. Verses 28 through 30, it says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Remember that. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. And so Paul puts forth Epaphroditus not only as an example of what it means to follow Jesus, but he instructs the Philippians to honor such men. In other words, these are the sort of people who should be lifted up and celebrated. Again, this flies in the face of what it means to be a citizen of Rome, where citizenship, honor, status, and who you were was more important than anything in the world. And so as we close, the question that we need to be wrestling with is, where do you see Jesus? See, the Philippians are being challenged. At the very core of who they are as a people living in the shadow of Rome, what Paul is doing by presenting weakness and humility as a picture of strength and courage would be similar to telling someone who lives in the self-indulgent and consumer-driven United States of America that true success rests in how you serve and care for those in your community and how much you give away rather than how much you earn and acquire. But for those of us sitting here this morning, and specifically for those of you who are going to be baptized, I think the cookies are still a little bit out of reach. See, Jesus' example, while beautiful and moving, feels out of reach. No one is asking you right now to die in the literal sense for your faith. It's just not happening. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Timothy is basically St. Paul part two, right? Can't really reach him. And Epaphroditus, while a normal guy in the first century of Philippi, he has been preserved for all time in the pages of sacred scripture. Again, a little out of reach. That's not happening for any of us. It's not happening. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, where do you see Jesus today? In whom do you see the cross-shaped nature of the Christian life embodied in our midst here at Redeemer Fellowship. The wonder and glory of the gospel is that it takes the ordinary things of this life 
And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God turns those ordinary things into instruments in the Redeemer's hand. In the same way Paul passed along the faith to Epaphroditus and Epaphroditus to the saints of Philippi, there are saints in this room who want to pass along the faith to you. I challenge our younger saints to find an older brother or sister in the faith and ask them to mentor and disciple you. And I challenge our older and more mature saints to be available for just that. For myself, I've been doing this from the moment I became a Christian back in high school. And even today, following the advice of my grandfather, I continue to steal with my eyes. I look at Pastor Tim as a man who knows how to care for the body of Christ with gentleness and consistency. I watch Pastor Seski, who demonstrates faith in the midst of difficulty, who overflows with joy, even as he carries around chronic pain in his body. I see Pastor Lee as he patiently and lovingly cares for his wife, dropping everything to be there for her, and never once have I heard him complain. I look at Pete, who walks as a man of discipline, taking care to spend that time daily in the word of God, studying and learning. But it's not just the pastors who embody this faith. I have an empty bottle of Dr. Joe's wine sitting on my shelf in my office reminding me daily of the faithfulness of a man who fought and finished the race. I hear stories from Debbie Stangley on a regular basis who shares, probably not even realizing it, about the people she's regularly caring for and helping. I see the patience of Lisa and Bob Gavain as they love and care for the children of this church. Cheryl Claus leads worship, and, and she's great at it, but she also cares for so many needs within the body, sacrificing her time so that others might experience the love of Jesus. The point, and the reason I bring that all up, not because I want to embarrass the people in our church, but first, because Paul tells us that we should honor such people. We should honor such people. And second, because these people and so many more who I don't have time to name show me how to be a more faithful follower of Jesus. That's what's happening in this passage. I don't know if you catch that. It's more than a travelogue. See, Paul is giving them the cookies so that they can indulge and understand what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? What does it mean to walk in faithfulness in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering? It means to give of yourself for the sake of others and the glory of our king. That's what it means. And, and while we might not understand it by looking at Paul, while we might not understand it by looking at Timothy or Epaphroditus, we can look around this room and have real-life examples of people who have walked the, the, the walk of faith in a way that brings honor to God and serves the body of Christ. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's trying to get across. You need help. We all need help. And for those who are being baptized this morning as you enter into this, this, this beautiful thing, you need help. You need help. You need people to come alongside you and care for you and show you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and that's the point, right? We honor such people. But in honoring these people, our gaze must look past them and on to Christ. New Testament scholar Michael Gorman, he says that the church is called to be a faithful public 
performance in both word and deed of the Christ story. In other words, the faithful witness of the church retells the story of Jesus as we share together in the life of Christ by loving God and neighbor. And the story we are called to retell and participate in is the gospel story, the good news of King Jesus, who because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own gain, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so today is Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of Holy Week. This is the week where we commemorate Jesus' last supper with his disciples, his crucifixion on Good Friday, his triumphant resurrection on Easter Sunday, where death was defeated and the promise of the forgiveness of sin was brought to fruition. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He gave himself completely so that we might have life. He offers this gift of salvation. And he asks us to respond in faith and in repentance. In other words, he asks for our life. When Jesus calls us, he bids us to come and die. That's what's represented by the waters of baptism. If you are here today, and you don't know the love of Jesus, I would encourage and challenge you to consider what you've heard this morning and that you would ask God to make this news of salvation, this good news, real to you because this is what it's all about. Jesus really did walk the earth. There is historical evidence of that. Jesus really did die. And on the third day, he really did rise from the dead. And if that's true, then that's everything. If it's not true, we are literally wasting our time. And we should all go home. We should eat the ham first and then we should go home. <laughs> but if it's true, which I believe with all my heart that it is, it changes everything. It literally changes everything. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, God, we love you with all of our hearts. We really do. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the wonder and goodness of the gospel of your son, Jesus, Father. Father, I pray this morning, Lord God, that as we heard your word preached, as we worship you through song, as we eat and drink of the body and blood, Father, that you would change us, Lord God, that you would draw us near to yourself and make us more and more like your son, Jesus, Father. God, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.